0: a warm welcome to everybody uh, who has come to spend the day studying Tanakh. Um, and it is indeed a pleasure to see so many familiar and new faces here at this uh, festival of Torah learning. Uh, today, we're going to study the story that you were never taught in elementary school—the story of Yehuda and Tamar, and the making of Yehuda as a leader. I don't know why they didn't teach this in elementary school. Maybe they felt the content of Bereshit, uh, Perek Chet was too uh, sexually explicit for the students. I always suspect that it wasn't the students who had the problem, it was the teachers. Um, but at any rate, it is one of those stories which uh, raises several eyebrows uh, with its uh, rather racy contents. Uh, But we're going to see that I think this is really an essential story to understand um, Yehuda as a leader, and I think it really is a key story in understanding Sefer Breshit in general and in our our Avot, our forebears in general. Maybe let me begin with the uh, two major characters and uh, the positive sides of each of them. If we start off with, the, um, with Tamar, we can certainly see both Yehuda and Tamar in this story as uh, biblical heroes in the most classical sense. If you look in the first source that's on your source sheet, um, a very famous Rashi, He Shilcha El Khamiah Tamar, in the, she's about to be executed, and instead of somehow uh, leaking to the press, uh, the true details of the story. She doesn't tell anybody that it is Yehuda who has got her pregnant and instead she sends the, the, the signs that she has, sends them quietly to Yehuda and um, she says <speaking in Hebrew> She just sends them and Rashi
1: says
0: Anim <speaking in> says <Hebrew> She didn't want to embarrass him to expose him and say, I am pregnant from you. She simply sent a message that whoever these belong to, he is the father of my child or my children. Amra, she said, If he will confess himself, wonderful. And if Yehuda does not come up with the information himself, let me be burnt. And I am not going to expose his identity, I am not going to embarrass him, I am not going to whiten his face. Better that a person not embarrass somebody in public, better a person throw themselves into a furnace, into flames, than embarrass somebody. When we look at this particular Ma'amar Chazal from Breshit Rabbah, um, we very much come with the understanding that Tamar is seen in heroic light, and she comes out the story, in you know, as a paradigm, as a as a real role model in terms of us understanding how careful we have to be with our language, how careful we have to be with personal dignity. We could look at the story also and see Yehuda as a hero. Of course, Yehuda's famous line when he receives this uh, these signs. And what is the what do we read in the psukim? If you want to look inside, it's in Paraklamet Chet, pasuk um, Chaf Vav, Vayakir saw the signs that she had sent. Sadkami She is more righteous than me. And you might say this is not much of a particular heroic act, um, because of course uh, she is bearing his children. And because indeed he was in the wrong, but we might want to think about you who does action from a different perspective. And this is something that I heard many years ago from Rav Binyamin Tabori, uh, where he says, uh, "Imagine, imagine the scene. She's been taken out to be burnt. Imagine a scene that you've read in books. I don't know, a Tale of Two Cities, or seen in movies. Imagine the." Uh, the Wild West with the gallows in the in the central square or the streets of Paris with the guillotine. And uh, people are looking for their week's entertainment. They're, they're looking for blood and the crowds are, are gathered. And, you know, they didn't have, I don't know, cable TV then. They had to have some other form of entertainment. And uh, the people can smell the blood and Yehuda gets these things. The easiest thing for him to dispose of Tamar the easiest thing for him to dispose of his embarrassments and all his troubles is simply to say, on with the execution, kill her. She's already got a death sentence. And he, you know, it's an embarrassing moment for him. In no culture was it appropriate to be intimate with your daughter-in-law. And he could have simply disposed of his shame and discarded this woman, but he doesn't. He answers these two words, he has a moment where he has a presence of mind, and many he faces his problem and admits that Tamar is more righteous than him. If that's true, and if we want to take this perspective, then all's well that ends well. And uh, we can close up the shi here. But I think there's a lot more complicated in this story, which leads us to ask some very fundamental questions about Yehuda, Tamar, and this story. So let me maybe go into a few questions about this episode. If we start off at the beginning of the Perek Lamed Chet. It was at that time. Yehuda descended from his brothers. He left his brothers. He associated with a man in Adulam whose name was Chira. He Shua, Aleha. And he he sees there a Canaanite man whose name is Shua. And what he really sees is the but Ishkina'ani, the daughter. We never hear her name of Yehuda's wife. And he marries her, or he is intimate with her, and now they have a son who is called Er, and another son who is called Onan, and another son who is called Shela. In, in a couple of minutes, what we're going to read, let's uh, take a look uh, what happens. It says, And then later on with Onan, also, he is a Ra, and Hashem kills him as well. What exactly is going on with Judah? Why is he leaving his family? Until now, in Sefer Breshit. The Abbot have existed on a north south axis, the Gabahar, starting in Shechem in the north, down through Beit El, Hebron, Beersheba, occasionally venturing into Graar. And suddenly Yehuda goes down from the Ezor Ha'Har, from the hill country, down to Adulam on the border of the Shevelah. Why is he leaving his brothers? Furthermore, why is he marrying? a Canaanite woman. He sees a Bat Ishkena'ani and marries her. This is uh, almost unthinkable in terms of the codes of Sefer Breshit where we have uh, so adamantly Avraham turning around to his servants and saying that there is under no conditions And we know the insistence also regarding with Esav and Yaakov that the, that the wives of Esav are Morat Ruach and the same way Yaakov has to marry with not Suddenly we, ha- we people who are not not Canaan. Suddenly Yehuda not only is geographically removing himself, but he is marrying a daughter of Canaan. If I want, you know, and then two evil sons, two sons who God kills. If I wanted to think about what this reminds me of. This even reminds me of another book, the beginning of a book, Megillat Ruth, where you have a person actually from Yehuda, same sort of area, who leaves the country in times of distress, and goes to another land, and has two sons, and the two sons die. In fact, I think there's a lot in context of that story, because, and maybe I'll add, um, we have Machlon uh, and Chilion. Two languages which seem like Machalau, Klayah, Destruction, Kilyon, and also the idea, Err and Onan, right? We remember the way that Rachel and her death calls Benjamin Ben-Oni, Onan sounds like affliction, trouble, and Err, er, in the same way as Noach Matzachin, if you spell Noach backwards, it is Chein, Right, Noah palindrome. In the same way, air er is Ra. Beinai Hashem, the name air er is Ra. Onan indicates affliction. What's going on here? There's something wrong with the way who dies acting. And by the way, like the root story, in the same way as Ruth is the one who can bring the family back to its redemption. Here it's actually going to be another woman, Tamar, who is going to find a way to restore Yehuda to what he is meant to be. So, what is going on with Yehuda? I'll go further in the story. Why does Yehuda treat Tamar so badly? He can't help it if one of his sons is evil and he dies, his second son too. But he tells her, as we read here in Pasuk. a minute Uh, he says to Tamar his daughter-in-law sit as a living widow in your parental house until Shelah grows up now what was he thinking was Shelah really too young or was he thinking something else here the Biblical verse tells us exactly. He was just biding time. Because he never wanted Sheila to marry her. To marry, because he was worried he'd die too. So do the honest thing. Tell her, I don't want any more association with you. I don't know if we're talking about Yibum. He could have done Khalita, He could have given her a divorce. Whatever he had to do. But don't string Tamar along. Everything about you who does actions here... Are incredibly perplexing, and maybe the most difficult thing is when we see Yehuda visiting a zonah, a prostitute, or as it's called buried worse, a kadesha, where the difference between a zonah and a kadesha is that a kadesha was frequently in the uh, context of religious service. What exactly is Yehuda meant to be one of our admirable forebears? What is he doing acting in this manner? Tamar as well is acting in a perplexing way. After all Tamar could have done the brave thing and she could have confronted Yehuda. Why does she disguise herself, dress herself up, dupe her father-in-law, engage in an illicit sexual union and then uh, you know, hide this fact until until afterwards. What is exactly we, we mentioned Tamar's virtue before but uh behavior here, her conduct, is, is certainly perplexing. So these are the questions that we have about the central characters. But I'd like to ask a more global question about this story. Because if you look at this paraclamic fet, it is wedged right in the middle of the Yosef story. When, when you read it on a Shabbat, it almost seems like an awkward uh, interjection. Let me explain what I mean from a linguistic perspective. Let's look at the last Pasuk of Paraklamad Lamed Paraklamad Zayn ends with Yosef being sold down to Mitzrayim. And it says, Pasuk Lamed, pasuk Lamed uh, Vav, machro el- Mitzrayim le- Potifar, sris paro, They sold him to Potiphar. We've just had the whole story of Yosef's dreams, Yosef's sale, and all of that. Even we've heard about Yaakov mourning, And then suddenly, Suddenly we go into the Yohuda and Tamar story. When we finish the story, we go right back to the Yosef story. But as some of the Vafrashim point out, we're worried that you have forgotten where we're up to. So look at the first pasuk of Perak Lamatet. This is almost like the Tanakh saying, "Oh, wait! Let me remind you about what we spoke about last, you know, a a chapter ago. We've gone off the point, right? And here we have a very big question: How does this story? Why is this story here? Why is it interrupting the Yosef story? It's such an interruption that the Tanakh needs to spend the whole pasuk getting us back into the story." Couldn't we have just put Perik Lamedchet before Perik Lamed Zion? If you understand what I mean, separated the two stories out, and I think this raises a deeper question: Does the Yehuda and Tamar story interrelate to the Yosef story, or in what way does it interrelate, or is it a standalone story? Now, I will say that there is no doubt that when the um, students of Bible as literature, look at this story of Yehuda and Tamar. They look at it as a perfectly structured story. It's a beautiful story. In the first scene, if you want, Yehuda has his descent, Vayered Yehuda. And, um, it starts off with, with death in the first, if you want, scene. That's the introduction. Yehuda goes down, he gets married, his children die. In the second scene, if you want, um, we see Pursued Aleph, Bet. The problem of that uh, there is no one to continue the zera of Yehuda, right? That he's not giving Sheila to her, so we have a problem. Then we have, as in every good story, the turning points when Tamar, uh, you know, tricks Yehuda, and Yehuda gets her pregnant. Then, of course, we have the tension scene where Tamar is about to be killed. And there, of course, is the resolution where Sadkami says, And in a perfect chiasm, the story ends with the birth of Yehudas' two children, Peretz and Zerach, which again, if I mention the negative names before of Er and Onan, of course, Peretz, Lifrotz, to burst forth, and Zerach, like the sun shines, such positive names. Instead of death, we have the restoration of the children, the family together, uh Yehuda takes on these children as his own and therefore this is a perfectly enclosed story which could have been put somewhere else. But the question is, how does this story fit in? And I think I can see from many of the faces here in the audience that everybody's saying, of course it's connected, right? Of course it's connected for many, many different reasons. I think the first one that you're thinking about is maybe even the first word of the parsha here. Where by Va'yerad Me'et echav. And of course, if you look at the first Pasuk of Perak Lamentet, V'yosef Hurad Mitzrayma. We've got two brothers. One is Vayered, the other is Hurad. If you want to go even further, both are now going to encounter compromising sexual situations. There's obviously a connection. Let's start with Rashi. Rashi says there is not only a linguistic connection and a thematic connection, but there is a causal link. Source 2 on your sheets. He's asking the obvious question Why is it that this Parsha is here? As an interjection, that they took Yehuda down from his special position. When they saw their father's distress. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes. You're the one who came up with the bright idea to sell him. If you would have told us to take him home, we would have listened. We all know the Yosef story well. We all know that the Yosef comes to his brothers and first they suggest that they will kill him. Ruove says, Right, and so they put him in the bar. And Reuven intends to come and get him later, but he's already been taken out. And it's Yehuda who says, Why should we, um, you know, kill our brother? Right? And he says, um, It was Yehuda's idea. According to Rashi, this is how it works. Yosef is sold, and there is tremendous... Acrimony within the brothers, the remaining brothers. They say, Yuhuda, was suddenly they see their father the mourning, you, you won't be consoled. Yaakov's weeping every day. And they say, Yehuda, it was your idea to sell him. If you were to practice real leadership, then we wouldn't be in this mess, then dad wouldn't be in this mess. And as a result of that, the the animosity within the family is so intense. Yehudah leaves. He leaves the family. Everything I said before. He leaves the the, the, the rest of the boys. He goes off and finds a Canaanite woman. He's out. He's out of the family. This is an interesting interpretation which sees Yehudah's Yerida as a result of the sale of Yosef. But there's a very, very, very big problem with this reading. And that is a problem of chronology. And if you'll excuse me for a few minutes, I'm going to have to do a little bit of technical work um, to concentrate on a little bit of mathematics, uh, because we're going to have to understand that in order to sustain the chronology here, we're going to have a lot of trouble. Let me explain why. Um, Let's talk about our time frame. If you look on page two, uh, you'll see... I just want to talk about how many years we have here. Then we'll talk about the... Uh, then we'll talk about how it fits in. Yosef is sold for... Yosef uh, is away from the family. The time frame of our story, from the time when Yosef is sold till the time when Yosef, when the family is reunified in Egypt, is 22 years. How do I know that? Okay. It's very clear. If you look at the table in the middle of the page, if you go from uh, left to right, okay, Yosef is sold at the age of 17 or so, it seems. Eh? That's when we have the dreams, that's when we have the Dibara'ah, and that is when Yosef is sold down to Mitzrayim. Uh, he goes down to Mitzrayim, he's in the house of Potiphar, and he has the incident with Potiphar's wife, and then um, he uh, spends time in, in, in the prison. And of course then, because of the, you know, Paro's dreams at the beginning of Mekait, we have that Yosef is summoned to the king. How old is he when he comes to the king? You see here in the the Mitzrayim. So Yosef is the whole episode between his sale and between when he actually comes to the palace. He's now 30, 13 years have passed. Of course then we have the seven years of plenty, Correct? Where he manages the economy during those seventeen years, during these seven years. So we've now twenty years have passed, and the brothers come down, or he eventually reveals his identity to his brothers after another two years. If you look uh, where I under where it says two years of famine, of course, <laughs> he what couldn't withstand it anymore, and he reveals his identity, and he says there. <laughs> Pasuk Vav In other words, we are now in the in the ninth year after he's come to Pharaoh. We've got 22 years. What do we have to pack into this 22 years? Yudah has to get married. He has to have three children, right? Er, Onan, and Shelah. Er has to be... Uh, age to be married, then die, or none to be married, then die, and then Sheila is promised. And it says that the only reason Tamar acted was because she saw that Yehudah was biding his time. She realized time had gone past. Now this would all be fine. This would work within a 22 year span. Oh, and Peretz and Zerach have to be born. That can work. But here's a real problem. Because this Peretz and Zerach are actually counted amongst those who go down to Mitzraim. Okay? And not only them, okay, let's take a look. I put it here in, in source number three. Yaakov, then we go through the thing. we go through the thing. Aaron Onan died in the land of Canaan, If it was just Peretz and Zerach who were born, that would be fine. But we actually have a third generation. Yehuda's grandchildren. Okay? That it says here, How do you get three generations, both children and grandchildren, into 22 years. And the only way to do it is to make a very bold suggestion, which is what the Chizkuni suggests Um, in the table. I I put it a table here just to make it clear. I'm not going to read through the Chizkuni. But just to understand the timing of the... We've got to fit it in 22 years, so look at the table I put here in Source 5. Okay, Vayire, you're going to have to explain... Yosef is sold, because of all the family arguments. Now, Yehuda gets married, immediately his wife becomes pregnant, okay, pregnancy of Er, one year he's born, pregnancy of Aram takes us into the second year, pregnancy of Shelah in the third year. You're going to have to suggest, according to the Chirskuni, that Er is a marriageable age at age seven. Okay? This is the only way to to work it, okay? Which I can already hear from the reactions doesn't sit so well with all of us, okay? Um, he's seven. He marries Tamar, okay, and um, and then um, somehow, and so in other words, it was it a, a year out of the twenty-two he's born after a year plus seven years. That's the eighth year, right? Then soon he dies. Then. Sorry, Onan Onan dies, then Er dies, then um, he tells her to wait, we're in the 10th year. She waits another year because he's spending a long time, we're in the 11th year. Okay? Then she tricks Yehuda, we're in the 12th year. Then we need Peretz and Zerach to be born. Okay? Then, of course, Peretz has to be seven years old till we're going to shut him off. Okay? So that takes us to the 19th year, give him a year to do Now he's going to have two children, right? So, and that takes us to the 22nd year. This is a very, very tough timeline. Um, uh, you know, <coughs> I'll put it in the language that Ibn Ezra would use. The Ibn you know, and Ezra, whenever he comes across a midrash that he think defies our, our, our. You know, rational way of thinking. He says, If this is a received tradition, no, shine, I'll accept it. Okay? But but if there's a, a, you know, if you came out with it, because that's the best way to, you know, to scramble the numbers, (laughs) I can choose a different way. And um, what does the Ibn Ezra say? The Ibn Ezra says, um, very simply, that Sorry, it's source 4 on page 1. Sorry, the order's a bit wrong. V'hi b'ayit ahi. E'n in ha'eit Yosef. This is not the time when Yosef was sold. Rak kodem hi makro. It is before he is sold. Okamo and he gives other, other examples. B'sham nasu godola. Ba'ayit ahi yivdil ha'shem et shebet levi. Frequently the phrase, Ba'ayit in the Torah and in the Tanakh, doesn't mean at that time. But it actually, he should be translated as sometime earlier. Sometime earlier. Now why am I going into this whole this, all, all of this matter? What's what's going on here? And I think what I really want to ask the question is the following. Is the Yehuda and Tamar story a product of a byproduct, a reaction to the sale of Yosef or maybe if the seminal events in the story happened earlier maybe it actually is embedded in the Yosef story in order to tell us that it is not a reaction but is it expressing something it predates the Yosef story maybe even could we say it is a cause of the Yosef story that the Yudan Tamar story is coming to give us some information about what went wrong with the sale of Yosef. In other words, we've just seen Yosef sold and we watch Yaakov go into mourning. We're wondering, how did we get into this mess? Now I'll tell you, by Heba sometime earlier, by Yereh Yehuda and Let me explain what led us to get into this mess. My contention is going to be, along with Ibn Ezra, that this story predates, or at least the first bits of the story, Yehuda leaving the family, um, maybe even his treatment Tamar, somehow predates. We don't have a lot of years to play with if Yosef is 17, but still. um, And I want to say something more about this particular um, story in terms of the Yosef story. There are a huge number of connections between this story and the Yosef story, and I've put this in source number, uh, 6, 7, and 8. Yes. Of course. So what I'm saying is, thank you for the question, uh, what I'm saying is that Yehuda left his brothers way before Yosef was sold, or several years between Yosef was sold. And it could even be, again, we need a certain number of years, so what we would imagine that Yosef was sold as Er and Onan and Shelah are growing up before they get married. Probably sometime before they got married, Yosef was sold. And it's then that we have the interaction that Er dies, Onan dies. And I'm going to try and prove this through a few proofs now. We'll start with using Midrashim because if Chazal saw these things, we don't need just to do this without Chazal. Okay? And we'll start with this uh, Rashi in source number 6 here. As we remember that um we have this uh, situation where and he nay sharakti agdi az a nisa says rashi says fa fi sharima yuhudayt afi bikadi since he tricked his father with a gadi where he slaughtered the gadi and gave the blood stained coat, shef bil katonat Adamo, remove gam otah bikadi is in in other words, if you recall, he had left his Chotemet and Petilim and Mateh with Tamar, because he didn't have any money with him. And then he wanted to pay her and he sent to Gedi Izim You remember? right? He sent a, a a goat to pay her. But when they said, where is the Kadeshah? They say, there never was a prostitute here. What are you talking about? So he doesn't end up paying her. right? And she holds on to his personal effects. She, she holds on to his... Petil, which is like his identity corn, his Mateh, which is his uh, staff, and his Chotemet, his signet ring. So she keeps them. She tricked him with a goat. Why did she trick him with a goat? Ah, wait. I remember a goat from our previous story. Yudah tricked his father with a goat. That's why Tamar tricks, uh, tricks him with a goat. More than that, of course, is a more powerful phrase. If you look in source number seven, again Bereshit rabbi Bishdachot, Sonet Hasim. They sent the striped coat to their father, and what do they say there? They say the famous line where they say Hakerna The brothers say to, to Yaakov Avinu, Hakerna Please identify Hakatonet bin Khahi Vayakira Vayomer Chayara We have Hakerna, the brothers say to their father, and of course Vayakira This is in Lamad Zayin Pasuk Lamad Gimel. Exactly the same words are used in the story of Yehudah and Tamar, where she sends his personal effects and says, So here we have a second linguistic connection. Maybe a third, we've already said, the Yosef Hurad Mitzrayimah. And that's mentioned in the the last source on this page, Um, source number eight. The stories are connected by all these linguistic and thematic connections, but I think maybe the most powerful one is this we all remember the scene when the brothers come back from Mitzrayim and uh, Shimon's in jail Right? You remember the scene? And uh, Yaakov gets very, very upset. Um, and they say the only way is to come down with Binyamin, and what exactly are we going to do? And uh, this, if you, it's in the next source, source number nine, or else you can look at it in your Tanakh in Perek um, Membet. And,. Um, what am I going to do? Yosef's gone and Shimon's gone. and Now you want to take Benjamin? Yaakov is beside himself. And now comes Ruvain with a wonderful suggestion. Dad, if you, you know, if I don't bring him back, just kill my two children. What a, what a crazy suggestion, right? You read it here, right? We all know the story not bring him back. Kill my two children. By the way, Yaakov acts as like most responsible parents would act if their son gave them. You know, you take the little son to the makolet, right? And you you, you leave you, you know, you take your give tell your twelve year old to take your six year old. He says, "Be very careful." He says, "Dad, don't worry." We can kill another few children if I don't bring him home, right? You say, you're not taking the child to the Makolet, right? <laughs> Where did he get such a off-the-wall suggestion? It's really simple. Because the brothers are blaming Yehuda. They're blaming Yehuda for what? That he had the idea to sell yourself. And what happened a few years later? Yehuda's two children died. The brothers saw Er die and Onan die. They don't know what's going on in the bedroom. They don't know what's going on. And so what do they do? They assume that why did Aaron er and Onan die? Because you took responsibility. Because Yehuda was culpable for yourself. And now what do they say? Rubin says, if I lose Binyamin, my two children should die. I will take better care than Yehuda did. Of course, this is a bad suggestion and it's, Rejected. In a minute, we're going to come back to what Yehuda says. What I'm claiming is this thing is not only linguistically connected to the Yosef story; it's not situated in the Yosef story. It is constantly um, dialoguing with the Yosef story, and and maybe I might even add that this story really pits Yosef and Yehuda as the leading avot, a uh, leading shvatim. Out of all the shvatim, the only Two, who really have any information about their families, who they married, what the names of their children are, why their children are what they are, is Yehuda and Yosef. Only two. And it's not surprising that later Yehuda and Yosef become the two leadership tribes. We see so many stories later on in Tanakh, whether it's Yoshua from Yosef and Kaleh from Yehuda, whether it is the kingdom splitting into Yehuda and Yosef, whether it's Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. These two stories are critical. So let's try and solve and try and understand how we're going to understand this story and why it is here in the Yosef story. And I want to go to maybe what is the critical point which is the Yudah's visit to the prostitute to the Zona, in this story. Let me add here that um, if we do juxtapose the stories Yudah looks even worse because Yosef, in his problematic sexual encounter with Eshet Potiphar, he passes the test. He decides to run out of the room, and he's uh, put under a huge amount of pressure, a young man, and he doesn't succumb to the uh, seductions of Eshet Potiphar. What about Yehuda? I want to say that this is the real core of the story in many ways, and the ideas I'm going to say in the next two or three minutes, um, I read in the writings of uh, Rav Moshe Lefenstein. Um Moshe said the following. He says, What is this idea of a the central core of the story, this visit to a prostitute? Why does she disguise herself in this way? What's she trying to achieve? But really, how does this play in the story? this this the, the prostitute client relationship is a, is a very problematic one for the following reason. You take the most intimate act, which is meant to express intimacy and love and union, and you expect a, a woman to give you this act just for money. I think we say, and certainly from a contemporary perspective, we would say that uh, no woman would choose, you know, out of her own free will, to go into prostitution the reason why people went into prostitution was because they were on hard ties or because they'd been abused it's true then, it's true today and uh, in this regard the, when you take this most intimate act the man who visits prostitute is not interested in her as, as a person in fact the idea that she covers her face and he doesn't even know what, he doesn't know her name he doesn't know her face he doesn't want to know her name or her face Because he's not interested. He's interested to have his pleasure, to use this woman, and then to leave. To have her, she's a chalpa ami, he's going to discard her tomorrow. She's not a person. She's just a a tool. And I think that this very difficult scene, I mentioned already that Yehuda leaves his brothers, he's almost acting in a Elimelech Machbon in Chilion way. There's something, I think, at the heart of this story, which, which expresses that something is very wrong with Yehuda. I think it's wrong in the biblical sense that he is leaving, as I say, the biblical lands of the Gavhahar. It's wrong in the sense that he marries a Canaanite. Uh, maybe let me, let me give one word of Hakdamah here. For those of you who are maybe looking at me a little askance for criticizing uh, Yehuda, Who indeed is one of our biblical heroes. We already see in many, many of our Rishonim and achronim, um, and earlier in the Midrashim that they're willing to highlight some of the flaws of our, our Avot and our, our great biblical heroes. And my contention is this. The Tanakh does not give us a static image of our Avot. It frequently, and I think almost always, gives us their flaws, and then how they transform themselves beyond those flaws. The Torah doesn't want to give us just a plain image of the Avot, that they're stuck in place, and here we have a statue. A great example would be Avraham Avinu. From the first Lech Lecha, to go to Eretz to the last Lech Lecha. goes through, as we know from the Midrashim, ten tests. He's growing, He's developing. We want to see Abraham's transformation. We just want to see the transformation of a Sarai into a Sarah. And with all of the Avot, it is in this way. Uh, we want to see the, the development of a Yaakov to a Yisrael. And that's another share, maybe next year. But I think the same is true in Yehuda. If I say something negative about Yehuda and his family here, it's not because I want to in some way debase Yehuda. Is because I think that the story about Yudah is a critical story about transformation, about learning, about mistakes and overcoming them. And therefore, what I want to say is that Yudah's attitude solely to Tamar is one of, I don't care what your name is, I don't care who you are, I can use women for my pleasure, and what about their feelings, frankly? I wouldn't even say I don't care, I don't think it crosses his mind. And let me try and deepen this a little bit and understand what this is because I think what Yehuda characterized Yehuda also characterized Er and Onan. Let's start with Onan. We all know the story of Onan. And it says that Onan when he was intimate with his wife, it says, I'm reading from Peret Lamad Chet Pasuk Chet (laughs) says marry your brother's wife. Here we have the word Yibum. The whole reason he's marrying her is not because they're in love. The whole reason he's marrying her is simply for one purpose. In order to, to do Yibum, that the memory of this dead man of Onan will be perpetuated. Nowadays, we we don't do it in this way. But we don't do it... uh, Sometimes we'll set up a charity fund or whatever it is. But there was a case in the news not long ago about a chayal who had been killed. And uh, for whatever reason, he had frozen sperm before he had been killed. And uh, the the parents wanted actually to use that sperm in order to have a child in this place. Why would you come up with such a... a, Because there is an intense need when... Persons, the lost a child, they want to somehow feel that there is some continuation, and that is why Onan marries this woman. What's his reaction? Onan, pasuk Onan ki lo lo He realized this child will not be his. So when he actually uh, was intimate with his uh, brother's wife, and again doesn't call it his wife, doesn't even mention her name, v'shichet atzal natan achiv. He did not consummate the, the act so that she wouldn't get pregnant. I don't understand. Do one or the other, right? Either don't marry her or say to I just can't go through with this. But what does he do? He has his sexual pleasure. But he doesn't, he expresses complete disregard for why he was there and disregard for Tamar. Now, by the way, here, Tamar, uh, if Onan is bad and he has disregard for all of this, what about heir? The question is, why did Er die? It says, If you look in the source number number 10, Rashi says the following, The same thing, he also didn't have a complete sexual act with Tamar. And that's why she didn't get pregnant. Shnei Donan, vayamak gem el tovid onan. It says, and onan was also. What's the gum? The heir had acted in this way. Can be tatosh el eri onan. But I don't understand why would why would er not do this? Because he doesn't he want to have a child. Answer: He doesn't. Why? Valamayah eri mashkhit zara k'deish shaloti taver v'yachis shofia. He didn't want Tamar to get pregnant because he was worried it would ruin her good looks. It would, her figure would be... It would ruin her figure. Oh my goodness. So here we have a family where Yehuda, going to the prostitute, the way I want to bring it, and again it is... Uh, the idea comes from Rav Moshe Lichtenstein. It shows absolute disregard for Tamar as a person because he wants her to sit as a living widow in a father's house One day I'll marry Sheila to you, we know he's not interested. And maybe the essence of all of this is this visiting the prostitute. He doesn't care who she is, he doesn't want to know her name, he doesn't want her face, he has no regard for this, for this woman. And the sons, Onan and Er learn the same thing from their father. They learn this idea that, you know, women are just there for us to be used, for our pleasure, with no regard to them. By the way, no regard for them in two ways. No regard in terms of Er, that Tamar is a woman and one assumes that she wanted to have a child. She wants to fill her own biology. She wants to fill her own legacy as a woman, as a wife, to bring life into the world. And later on with Onan, we see how desperate she is even to be able to go to such lengths when she realizes she's not being married to Sheila, to dress herself up and to trick her father-in-law. I asked before, why does she do this? Why doesn't she to confront him? I think she knows if she confronted him, he would just brush her off. He doesn't care. He's never had a conversation with her. He has no regard for what she cares about. But Tamar expresses incredible loyalty. Tamar's not doing it for herself. Tamar is doing it for her dead husband. She is desperate to give him he, can't, he's dead, she can't do anything for Air, but the one last thing she can do for him is give him a child. And by hook or by crook, whichever way she's going to do it, she is going to be incredibly loyal. And this is the lesson that she teaches Yehuda. The lesson is to take people seriously, to understand the depths of personality, the depths of emotion. That the people around you aren't pawns who are just there for you. They have emotions and feelings in their own right. Now, why am I say, I asked the question before, is this a reaction to the Yosef story? Or is this, if you want, a precursor to the Yosef story? And now let's remember back to that first Rashi where Rashi said, when they saw their father's distress, they said, Yehuda, why didn't you tell us to do different? I don't understand. When Yehuda said, by the way, the most extreme uh, reading of that passage is "Mabetsa usually Betsa indicates monetary gain. Rashi says, "Oh, why should we just you know kill him? We can make a buck or two out of this guy, right? We can, we can make some money out of him. Well, how callous can you be right? Now by the way, even that sentence is one of the most grotesque sentences. When you send somebody down to slavery, first of all, we know that in the ancient world, slaves didn't last very long. Slaves were, lived a life of absolute misery, a life of almost purg- living purgatory. Joseph happened to be lucky. He was very charismatic and he was you know, employed by somebody and he managed to rise up the ranks. And of course, he had the Yad Hashkacha, HaKadosh Baruch guiding his ways. But in Roman times, slaves, they say, frequently would last no more than five years, because they were beaten black and blue, they weren't fed, and what have you. You can just sell your brother down to Egypt. And what about their father? The scene where they bring the coat to their father, and then it says, He <laughs>
1: Uh, mourned
0: for his father many days, by the way, that phrase Yamim Rabim comes back as well later in the story with Huda's callousness where it says, hayamim. and there'd been a lot of time and it's still not given Sheila, the Yamim Rabim. All of his sons and daughters tried to comfort Yaakov and he wouldn't be because he said, Vayomer what did you expect? Your father wasn't going to be distraught. Yudah doesn't think about the people around him. He doesn't care about the people around him. It's just him. And now along comes Tamar with her message of dedication. And she is going to teach you the lesson of his life. And the lesson of his life is this. He sees her dedication, and that is exactly as opposed to his father. She said, He said to father, care Here, she says, Hakernah. And it all comes into him. He understands exactly what she's done. He understands and contemplates sitting there for years and years just thinking, how can I fulfill the legacy of my dead husband? He realizes her dedication. He realizes how callous he's been. Not only does he adopt or take on her children who are his children, but he is transformed as a person. I think it is not incidental that the key objects in the story are his Chotemet, Bateh, and She asked him for his Tudat Zahut. She asked him for his signet ring, for his staff, his symbol of authority. And she doesn't just turn around to him and say, These are your children. She gives him his personal identity tag and says to him, What she's effectively saying to Yudah is, Yudah, who are you? Who are you, Yehuda?" Now, the amazing thing is that this are called in the psukim an eravon, Right? If you remember in the story, you have to give me a security for the loan. And uh, it is this Eiradon with which she tricks him, and it's when he receives these objects, suddenly the penny drops like a ton of bricks. And suddenly Yehuda realizes how callous he has been, by the way. Not only to Tamar, but obviously to his brother, to his father. As I said, the spirit of Yehuda is what animates the whole story. And now we understand the centrality of this, but also the centrality of the word Eravon. We see it suddenly coming up in the story in all sorts of other places. If we follow through the story, and we see the critical moment where Yehuda takes responsibility for, B, for, for Binyamin how does it read? I'm reading in Mem Gimel it's in source number 13 if you would like to see it there on your sheet on your sheet source 13 the brothers have been spending time and they nothing's moving and they've got no no food and they say to their father, Listen, we can't go down because we have to bring Binyamin. These are the terms, there's nothing to do. And Yehudas says there, Send him with me. I will be his Eravon. You can seek him from me. Yehudas says, I will be the Eravon. And in Yehudas' speech later on, when Binyamin, when everything gets messed up and there are complications, and Binyamin they find the cup in his in his in his sack, and he has to give his grand speech. The word, the the root ayin resh comes back again. Look here in source number fourteen, the great speech. Right, and I'll just uh, relate to the last two lines. We'll come back to the rest in a minute. Pasuk I am the Arav. where did this word begin in our story it began with Tamar with the Eravon right? he learns the lesson of the Eravon who am I I am not here just to serve me I am here to be responsible to the people around me I will be the Eravon and he says it to his father and he follows through with it he follows through with it putting himself in the place of Benjamin. Him becoming the surrogate, taking on all of that, and I'm going to explain in in, in our last uh, few minutes just how far this goes. I want to deal with this notion of the Erebon, and uh, does offer to his father, <speaking in Hebrew> I will be responsible, you can seek it from me, him from me. If I don't bring it to you, then I will sin to you all the rest of my life. I mentioned before uh maybe rather silly suggestion, kill my children. But I always wondered, how is it that Yaakov actually listens to Yehuda? Because all he says is, Dad, I'll take responsibility. If he's so worried about Binyamin, why is it, you know, maybe he should say, fine, we'll go get food from somewhere else. I know I can think of other solutions. You know, send uh, don't send Benjamin. Pay some people to go and get grain on their pay. Somebody's airline ticket. They'll fly to uh, Alexandria, get the grain, and bring it back for you. He had other options. Why does Yehuda? How does he? How does he convince Yaakov? It's all in this phrase Anochia, ervenu miadita But what is going on there? And here I want to take what will sound like a digression, but I hope it will explain just how powerful what Yehuda does is this. Um, we have to take a little digression into the world of the shepherd. And I'd like you to look at the source number 11, Shemot Per-Hafbet. Uh, this is in the middle of Parshat Mishpatim, and it tells us what we do. It's the story of uh, Dine Shmira, Shomrim, and what do you do? For example, it says, "Kiyuten eshaloeh uchamar osel or sharoeh If you give an animal, "Vehol ba'imali shmot u'meiton ishbar nishbar ein roeh." So you lend somebody a donkey or a horse or whatever it might be, and you come to the stable in the morning, and it's dead, or I don't know, somehow somebody steals it. Shvuat Hashem tia ben shnei hem imlo shelach yadol baulecher ehu berakach b'alav loishan. In other words. I am a shomer chinam, right? And I can make an oath, and I can say, right? it, um, it got stolen, it died. I make a shvua, and I don't have to pay. But now it says like this, right? Im ganov i ganiv mi yimor if it's stolen. Im tarov i lo what happens if I'm a you're giving me your sheep to look after, and a wolf came in the middle of the night and killed the sheep? So, they're telling us you were meant to look after it. If it's stolen, you have to pay. But if it was attacked, then what do you do? You bring an aid hatshreifa. I guess what do you do? The wolf comes and attacks, and there's I don't know, there's blood somewhere. So you you bring the blood, or you bring a a leg of the animal, or you bring the carcass of the animal, or you bring, I don't know. You bring an Eid Hatrefa, right? That's what you bring. Now, what's amazing is that this language seems to remind us of things. When you hear Ganov Ganev, or even better, Tarof Yitarev, what does it remind you of? I put it here in the table below. Yib Tarof Taref. Okay? Of course, that's interesting. And Yosef says about himself, Ki ganov In other words, suddenly we see that in a situation where Ganov you have to pay. And if tarof taref, this is talking about a sheep, right? I, I get it, not a person. But if it is tarofi taref, you be, bring the Eid HaTrefa. By the way, this explains very well why Yaakov refused to be consoled. Um, the, the Well, sorry, this doesn't explain. This explains why the brothers wanted to bring the blood-stained coat to Yaakov. They're all sheep farmers. How do you absolve yourself of responsibility if somebody is being tarof tarof? You go to your boss and you say, here, I couldn't do anything. There were three wolves and they attacked the sheep. I lost a sheep today, but here is the evidence. Eilat trefa. And then you're absolved of responsibility. That's why the brothers bring the bloodstained coat. They say, here is the Eilat Trefa, you're yourself. We're not responsible. Got it? Why is Yaakov not satisfied by that? Well, one reason Yaakov is not satisfied by that is because he's not satisfied, Right? He's lost his son. It doesn't help very much to be told. We're not culpable. What you have to be told is, I want my son back. But there's another reason. And that reason is this. Um, if you look in uh, Bereshit, Peraklam and Aleph, Yaakov explains to Lavan how he functions. And Lavan accused him of all sorts of things and being dishonest. And Yaakov gives a amazing speech and um, he talks about how he has had such integrity and that he has been honest above and beyond and he says you've got it in, in source number 12 I'm just going to read a few more he says you've checked everything I haven't stolen anything and he says you know that when I was your shepherd I was Really about above beyond your sheep and your and and your goats never miscarried. I never ate any and then put it on the business expense. I never brought you a trefa. In other words, why does the sheep farmer bring the aid hat trefa? Because what he's saying is, I couldn't I couldn't find a wolf. It was too fierce. I'll show you. You'll see the claw marks. You'll see the teeth marks. You'll understand. I was just out of my depth. Yaakov takes more responsibility than that. Yaakov says, "You know what? I should have put them in a more safe pen. I should have. Uh, ha- I should have hired more. I should have got another sheepdog. I should have." Yaakov always never brought the Trefa to Lavan. Instead, he says, he says here, Trefa lo evet I never brought your trefa. Amochi achatenu." I took it out of my pocket, I was stolen from day and night, but I always took the hit. Why? Because if I'm the Shomer, I take full Shemira. So let me try and explain what I'm trying to say. There is a standard shepherd's exemption, which is that when there is an attack by wild animals, you bring the Eid hatrefa. The brothers functioned at this level, and therefore, when Yosef was lost, they brought the ayah trefa and they thought they were exempt. But Yaakov never functions in that way. He has a higher financial responsibility, where he takes full responsibility. Even though Gnuvati or Anochi Achatenu You can always ask me because I always say I have to adopt a higher. Mode if it was, if it was, if, if a pack of wolves came along, that means I'm not doing my job well enough. Why am I focusing on this? Because this is exactly the phrase which Yehuda uses. Yehuda uses it you know, over here, where when Yehuda wants to convince Yaakov, he uses Yaakov's own standards. Instead of Anochi Akhatenu, Akhatenami Yadit what does he say? Anochi Ervenu of course by the way he can't say about a person I will pay for him it's absurd to pay for a person right? so he says dad your own ethical standards where you took full personal financial responsibility I will keep that standard and when Yaakov hears those words he remembers the same standard that he had before Lavan to take even a higher level of responsibility that Yehuda is not—he's go, going to—he's going to make sure that he's going to not rely on any sorts of uh, other extraneous circumstances, but he is going to fully put himself in the line of fire to make sure that he puts all the responsibility of him. How little did Yehuda know that this would come into fruition? Because of course, the easiest thing—if we get to the end of the story. Where the brothers are trying to leave Egypt for the last time, and Yosef arranges that he plants the goblet in Binyamin's sack. What would the, could the brothers have said? They could have gone back to Yaakov and said, we took full responsibility. But Binyamin messed it up. Binyamin took the cup. In fact, in one of the midrashim, the brothers turn round to Binyamin and say, you are a you are a thief, just like your mother. Your mother stole the truffle, and you stole the the gavir. You, what's wrong with you, Rachel? Kids, right? You can't keep your hands off things. Every time we're trying to get clear of somebody, you take something. Maybe Yehuda could have said, just like the farmer, right? I didn't know there were going to be wolves in the area. I didn't know there were going to be bears. It's not my fault. But let's remember, Yehuda said. I'm going to take a higher standard. And let's just take a look at what he does here. And I want you to understand the depths of the Arivut which he learns from Tamar. I'm reading from source 14. This is Yehuda standing before Yosef quoting Avi, quoting Yaakov. And he says, "Atem You know that my wife had two children. One left me, that's Yosef. They said he had been torn and I've not seen him not not seen him till now. And if this second one, Binyamin, is lost I said before that Arevut is not thinking about yourself it's taking on the world, the emotions all of the Mitan Rikshi all of the emotional and the whole, the whole impact of another person. I always wonder how Yehuda managed to say this. He's quoting Yaakov and he says, my wife had two children. Who is he talking about? Rachel? Wait, know, as if my wife as if I only had one? Well actually Yehuda is taking on the fact that there's a lot of favoritism in this family of Yaakov. And if I want to put it in the most extreme sense... Yaakov only really cared about one wife and he really only cares about two children. And if the first one got lost and the second one goes, I'm not going to survive. For a ben Layah to say this, to take on all of Yaakov's favourites from Ben-Rachel and to stand before pleading for ben to be free and say, you know what, it will kill my father. Right? It will kill my father because he really only cares about Rachel and Bnei-Rachel. What he's really saying is, I don't matter. But he's totally taking on Yaakov's pain. You know what? When I think about these Pesukim, I think something else is going on. I hear him and he's talking in Yaakov's voice. And if I lose this one, I'll never survive. Is he talking about Yaakov or is he talking about himself? Because of course, lost and he didn't want to give up Shelah. He didn't want to give Shelah to Tamar. Because he was worried he'd die. He has an insight into Yaakov by even thinking about himself. He also, and it's at this point that he turns around and says, (laughs) I am a Ravon. I am asking myself who I am. I have a new Chotemet and a new Petitim and a new Mateh because now I've learned the lesson of Yehudah. The lesson of Hodaah of admission, of responsibility. Not of discarding the people around me as if they are merely disposable. Not of just treating the people around me as if I'm the only one who matters and all of their emotion, all their care. The people around me have deep feelings. They have deep commitments. And it's my responsibility to take on the full weight of those commitments. I'm taking on my father's commitment. I'd say even more than that. If we had the shepherd's standard, which the shepherd's standard was to be absolved of financial responsibility, Yaakov's standard is to take on full financial responsibility. Yehuda's standard is even higher than Yaakov. He is taking on full emotional responsibility. He has even risen above his father with the standard of Arevut, which is what he learns, from Tamar. And therefore I would say that this story is not just an interjection into the Yossi story. It is one of the keys to the resolution of the Yossi story. It is the key to the healing of Yehuda. It is why Yehudah becomes the basis for Malchut. Because if a Melech only thinks about himself, we say, <speaking in Hebrew> We don't want a leader who's just thinking about himself. We want a, a leader who can say that he is the leader of the whole nation. How is somebody going to be a leader? Unless he takes on the full understanding about what it needs to be the nation. This word, Arev, which you from Tamar, forms the basis of a very important phrase that we use in halacha. Kol It's not just a motto. But what it means is that if somebody over there hasn't done a mitzvah, if somebody over there hasn't blown, I've blown shofar i said the bracha, but somebody over there hasn't. I can now say the bracha for him. Why? Because if another Jew hasn't done a mitzvah, I'm lacking. Because we're all connected. We're all interconnected. We do mitzvot for one another. I am not exempt if you are deficient. And therefore this is not only a lesson for Yehuda, this is not only a lesson for Malchut. As we stand here in the nine days trying to be metaken our past, maybe the lesson of Yehuda, not only of Sad Imeni, his ability to discern by Yehuda, his ability to, to, to understand the Eiravon, to understand the full depth of responsibility we must have for the people around us. If we remember that, maybe we will bring more of a Tikkun and bring ourselves closer to the Gula this year as well. Thank you very much.